So many of the times when we get briefs from people that have got something they need communicated and they say to them, what's the most important bit? And they say, well, this is the most important bit and this and this and make sure you mention this and also this and you can't forget about this and you've also got to make make this point too. I'm Kyla Sims, the host of this podcast, Infernal Communication, brought to you by Staffbase. In this show, we take an inquisitive look into the triumphs, fumbles, and chaotic clockwork of internal communications. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the most successful worldwide communications campaign that has happened in our lifetimes. The thing is, when this movement started, none of us were paying attention to its tactics or CTAs. We were sort of busy with a global pandemic. While most of us were scrambling to buy toilet paper, setting up our parents with Zoom, and Googling DIY hand sanitizer kits, we were also being targeted by this extremely effective campaign. Nowadays, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who hasn't heard these three words. Flatten the curve. So what can we learn from the most successful communications campaign of our generation? What was it about these three little words that had the whole world aligned under a common cause when so much was at stake? And how do we convince every single person to take action when the stakes could mean life or death? How does that sound, guys? Can you introduce yourself? So I'm Dr. Susie Wiles. I'm a microbiologist um, at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Dr. Susie Wiles is all too familiar with these kinds of stakes. And her story isn't just about getting a handful of people to take action. Susie had to convince the entire world. Yeah, and a science communicator, I guess, is my other hat that I wear. And you're one of the brains behind the phrase flatten the curve. Well, no, I'm not a brain behind it, but I am one of the reasons why it went viral, I guess. (laughs) Apologies. (laughs) Do you remember where you were when you first learned about COVID-19? Yes, I was on holiday in the UK with my daughter. And so I, you know, as an infectious diseases kind of nut. I obviously follow things like outbreaks around the world. And and so I remember getting alert about this new virus in China and thinking, oh, you know, what's this? And then I came back to New Zealand in mid-January and within a couple of days, my phone was ringing, you know, journalists asking, tell us about this new, this new virus. And I was like, okay, yes, I should go and start looking into that. I've played this role during the Zika outbreak, you know, during um, the Ebola outbreak uh, in West Africa. We've had our own little microbiology crises in New Zealand. So I'm somebody who's just on many journalists' phone. <laughs> um, and so when my phone started ringing, I just thought, oh, here we go. You know, this is the this is the kind of the usual thing. People will ask me what's going on. And then really, a couple of weeks later, it had just completely exploded. We continue to have new cases as of this morning. Now the question is, what are we going to do about that? Everyone was trying to take control of a situation that felt like it was quickly getting out of hand. But for scientists like Dr. Susie Wiles, A global pandemic was something they'd had on their radar for a while. Oh, yes. So one of the really cool things I was asked to do back in 2005 was to be the MC for an event about pandemics. So where I live in New Zealand, we're known traditionally as having two large islands, but actually we're an archipelago. We've got lots of islands, one of which is called Great Barrier. And the population of Great Barrier are very self-sufficient. Uh, and um, some of the people there organized this event called Pandemic. And what they wanted to talk about was what would happen 
if there was a pandemic and Great Barrier Island was the last place where there was no disease. They brought together a virologist, a science fiction writer, somebody from civil defense, and a professor of disaster management. You know, there were sort of really flippant questions like, what do we do with all the bodies and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which now just feels really like, ugh. But the thing that the, the professor of disaster management talked a lot about was in his work, he studies communities that have experienced earthquakes and volcanoes and all these kinds of things. The communities that come out of those disasters the best are those that work together, that think about the collective good, that don't leave people behind. And that really stuck with me. Watching how the community in their experiment came together in a crisis and the vital role that communication played were all crucial learnings for the real life test that the entire world would take just a few years later. You know, things were kicking off in in Italy. China was building new hospitals in a matter of days. I mean, it escalated so fast, right? And so I guess it was in those few days where it became, oh, right, okay, this is not something we've seen before. So my job is to help people understand this. I remembered what he said about that, you know, we've got to um, remain calm and we've got to think about everybody and we've got to act collectively. That was just the thing that I wanted to try and get everybody to understand. Have a plan. Talk about your plan with others. You know, talk to your neighbours. Do they have a plan? How can you help them? Check in on those who might be living alone uh, because we'll get through this together. Flatten the Curve became common parlance in the unfolding of the global COVID-19 pandemic. You've heard public health officials and myself say many times that we need to flatten the curve. If you look at the curves, what we need to do is flatten that down. It is flattening the curve, and we see... It caught on early in an effort to mitigate the spread of the new virus, as scientists and governments were hurriedly trying to get good information and communicate that information to the public, all while grappling with what an emergency of this size could mean for the planet if we couldn't get it under control. So can you take us through how Flatten the Curve was actually created, or that, I guess, the memification of that? So I was basically writing a lot about how things were changing, you know, what were the things that people needed to see. And I saw the flatten the curve concept being shared on Twitter by Drew Harris. And so when I saw that tweet of Drew's that had this graph on it that just showed, you know, if we put measures in place, we can lower the number of cases at any one time and that can keep it within our ability to look after people. I thought everybody can do something with that. So we need to talk about this message. But what really struck me about the graphic was that it appealed to me as a scientist. I mean, I I understood it, but it didn't really quickly give you that message. And so I thought, actually, it would be great to, to do a different version of this, that people would get that message. So to make this message come to life, you needed a little backup. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You need someone who's an expert in visual communication. And so that's when I started collaborating with Toby Morris, because he was the person I thought he is genius at that. I wonder if he'd be interested. Hello. Can you hear me? Hey, Toby. Thanks for chatting with us. Yeah. So you're the designer that teamed up with Dr. Susie Wiles on the Flatten the Curve project. Take us through where things began on your side. I guess like everybody, sort of early 2020, you started to see things bubbling up in the news about this virus overseas. We went camping the weekend that the first COVID cases came into New Zealand. Beautiful, idyllic. It's the middle of summer where the kids are out swimming and I'm just sort of lazing under a tree and I turn my phone on and see that some COVID cases have come into New Zealand. And just that sense of this was going to be something that could be quite a big deal. 
I work for a website called The Spinoff. We were also publishing Susie Wiles. To me, she was one of the best science communicators that we have in, in New Zealand. So I was already working from home by that stage. I was sitting here where I am right now in my garage, a little studio in my garage. Then I got a call from my editor, Toby Manhire, called me up and said, hey, Susie's really keen to work with you. Um, she's got an illustration that she needs for one of her pieces that she's writing for us. But it was just one of those things where it's like, if Susie needs a hand, yep, sign me up. Between Toby's illustrative and design mastery and Susie's command of all things science, the pair made a great team. So having never met him before, but I'd long admired his work, I just sort of asked my editor at the spinoff, you know, would Toby be interested? And within an hour, we were on the phone together. As soon as we're on the phone together, she's talking me through this thing that she wants. So the first idea was that it would be a GIF and it would toggle between the two curves. One is a sort of a steep curve that sort of rises higher and, and falls quicker. When we did nothing. One is a, a longer flattened out curve. When we did something. Basically hospital capacity, like that if we get over a certain point at the hospitals, that's when we're really going to be screwed. I also remember saying to him, it would be really cool if we could have this panel underneath that had like a person that reflected those two kind of attitudes. And while we're talking on the phone, I have a pencil and a pad in front of me and I'm, I'm sort of doodling diagrams and I basically draw it on a little scrap of paper. So yeah, we get off the phone. It seemed like the kind of thing, the, the, the scale of what was going on being important to make this as fast as possible. I was quite excited by the idea and quite excited to be working with Susie. I sketch out the graph first and then then the first challenge, I guess, is thinking about who these two characters are. I don't want them to both be men and I don't want them to be both be women, but which one, you know, one is kind of like the person who's a bit in denial and the other person who's, who's taking action, which, you know, some people got upset about later on, making the man be the sort of stubborn one and the woman be the one who's, who's taking some initiative. And I realise now actually that was really hard and there were lots of decisions that he made. And I guess another challenge was trying to figure out the colours of it. The original sort of academic diagram version that, that Susie had shown me had the two different curves. One was red and one was blue. I've drawn political cartoons long enough to know that labelling one thing red and one thing blue is generally reads as a political decision, that, that those colours are quite loaded in terms of politics. In New Zealand, you know, there's also the yellow party and the green party and the purple party. So there's there's a few colours that are, that are sort of ruled out. So I have to try and figure out two colours that are not going to come across as I'm saying, this is this party's approach or this type of person's approach. So I ended up with slightly unusual kind of orange and teal colour combo and emailed it to her and say, is this what you mean? It was just perfect. Yes. You know, the very enthusiastic, like, you know, just the fact that he'd put like this little hospital, you know, where above the line where it was talking about healthcare capacity, it was just genius. And I guess that's Toby's thing as a visual communicator is how can you really visually show what it is that you're trying to show, you know. It's one of those things that just sort of fell into fell into place. And I watched an interview yesterday with a musician who was talking about the song just like fell into my lap or something like Susie and I have talked about that a few times since is the result of both of us, you know, sort of years of experience of trying to work out how to communicate clearly and being sort of ready for that moment, I guess, that, the, you know, the microphone gets handed to you and you, you know what to say, you know. And then it was time to put their creation out into the world. What happened next? How did you get the first GIF uh, out there and, and who picked it up? Actually, so there was one step before that, which was me saying to Toby, can we release it under a Creative Commons license? And this was because I felt if this was useful to people, I wanted people to have the ability to adapt it and change it. And what I was really thinking was, 
translating it so that it was accessible in, in languages other than English. So these are licenses that explicitly state people can do something with the work. And we shared it under a license that specifically said, you know, change it, do whatever you like, but you have to credit us when you, uh, you know, in your new version. So that's what we did. And we put those little things on there. All I did really was was write a piece for the spinoff about it, which we embedded that graphic in, and then we tweeted it. And it went a bit wild. <laughs> Spreading all over social media. And immediately my phone started blowing up with everybody sending me screenshots saying, mate, are you, did you see this? You know, oh, Ryan Reynolds shared it or something, you know, some weird celebrity. Major news outlets around the world eagerly snatched it up. Then it just goes everywhere. And we ended up being featured in all sorts of different places. The Wall Street Journal put it in an article or I think Obama shared it. The New Zealand Prime Minister adopted it like a new national slogan. The New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern printed it off and held it up in the national press conference. I needed to make the space we need as a nation to prepare manage the spread, and as I said, flatten the curve. That it felt like the whole country was watching. And other communicators slapped together their own versions of this infamous shift. What was flatten the curve doing in the real world? So I guess it was helping people understand that their actions, you know, had consequences, right, in, in a good way, in that if we did things that we could actually um, slow the virus down. How does it feel knowing that those three little words may have saved thousands of lives? It's a bit overwhelming, I guess. So I guess there's a sense of pride of being able to contribute in some kind of way. In terms of talking about saving lives or, or, or changing people's attitudes, that part is I find harder to get my head around. That's a really, <laughs> feels very weird. It's kind of surreal, really. You know, we've since gone on and done lots of other things and, and people tell me all the time that that when they've seen our illustrations from Flatten the Curve to others, that it has saved lives. And that's both very flattering, but also sort of daunting. I, you never know, like, how do you answer that? What what do you say in response? Um, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't know. It just, <laughs> I, I think, you know, how it makes me feel is that's amazing. And it's such a privilege to have been involved in that. And, and I'm grateful that I was able to help in some way. But I guess what we were coming to realise in New Zealand was that actually slowing it down wasn't good enough. And so it would be much better if we could try and stop it altogether. And I, I guess I wonder whether if more of the public around the world had understood what that message was, whether it would have changed anything. Probably not, but I, it is something I wonder about. You're listening to Infernal Communication, a podcast brought to you by Staffbase, where we dive into the deeper conversations happening behind some of the biggest comms, problems, and puzzles that impact organizations and beyond. If you're enjoying the show so far, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen from. You can also check out the show on our website by going to infernalcommunication.com. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe and smash the like button and tweet about it and call your mom and tell her about it. Most importantly, let us know what you think. Let's keep the conversation going. As you heard, Flatten the Curve had massive appeal. Translating a complex epidemiological idea into a three-word catchphrase with a gif helped the masses understand what they needed to do to help keep themselves and their communities safe. 
With the mass adoption of the flatten the curve message and mentality, medical systems had a fighting chance to keep up with COVID hospitalizations, all while scientists and researchers scrambled to create a vaccine. That clear, succinct, and engaging visual message was literally saving lives. But for Dr. Susie Wiles, pride was very quickly replaced with regret. You had flattened the curve, but this phrase was something that you later regretted. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So the whole idea about flatten the curve is that we take action to slow down the spread of the disease, but we're not actually stopping it, right? So you're just trying to keep the ability to deal with it within your ability to deal with it rather than allowing it to overwhelm, you know, whether it's healthcare systems, people, whatever. But there obviously, there was another way to deal with it, which is actually to try and stop it. And so that's why uh, we ended up doing another graphic just a few days later. We re- did the graphic so that it now had three scenarios. And we moved from having just the panel at the bottom that had the people, we had like just one person, we moved to it being about a collective response. Uh, the first panel was basically the, the idea that if you did nothing, you know, everybody was just like, yeah, whatever, it would be overwhelming. The second one showed actually if we had this really strong collective response, we could stamp out the cases completely. And then the third panel was... But if you took your foot off the brake too soon, the cases would just come back again. We showed a wave. (laughs) If you took those collective actions away too quickly, then it would come back. And it's been really depressing to see those waves become wave after wave after wave, right? Um, It was right there and we knew about that in February 2020, or at least the epidemiologist did. Though an effective message in its own right, it failed to take off like Flatten the Curve did. With Flatten the Curve, there is this sense that, like, life will eventually sort of go on and it's, you know, you'll have to just manage it. Well, I think that what we were hoping was that that science would come to the rescue, right? Um, that the longer you manage the outbreak using public health measures like contact tracing, isolation of people who are infected, masks, everything you can to try and stop transmission, it buys time for things like effective vaccines, for, you know, better drugs. And that's exactly what happened, right? And within a year, I mean, it's amazing. We had several vaccine candidates in trials and then ready to use in people. If we'd used the vaccines well uh, globally, on top of all the other measures that we know stop transmission we could could have probably got this under control. But we lost that window of time because vaccines, not enough of them were made or distributed around the world. So, you know, capitalism got in the way and human nature got in the way. You know, that gave time also for uh, people who have always taken advantage of people to sell their own products or whatever you know, they all just pivoted to using COVID-19 as the way to make money. And so they started to spread their messages of disinformation, you know, making people nervous about the, the vaccines. And the two things we need to do now is how do we deal with misinformation and disinformation? And how do we ensure that capitalism does not stop an effective vaccine being made available to everybody in the world who needs it? Creating a successful or viral message is like catching lightning in a bottle. Nearly impossible, and even harder to do twice. Despite that, 
Toby and Dr. Wiles have quickly become the dream team of impactful communication by creating engaging, shareable messages that really resonate. Which takes me to another uncomfortable side of communicating in our digital age. I actually want to dive a little bit more into the topic of misinformation. The, the challenge of misinformation was particularly exacerbated by the pandemic. And it was a hot topic prior to 2020. But I think most people could agree that the pandemic really took it to a whole new level. And it was really disorienting. I imagine you've run into a lot of well-intentioned or not pieces of misinformation. Um So how has dealing with misinformation played a role or changed your role now? So that is a great question, actually. Um, So the research around uh, vaccination and how you get people who are hesitant about getting vaccinated, how you end up, um, how they end up changing their minds has been really clear for a long time that people change their minds based on talking to people who they love and trust and respect. And so there's this idea of trusted voices, right? So within every community, there are people that that community trust. And so what they need, what that community needs is for those trusted voices to have the correct and appropriate information and for them to be able to package that information in a way that um, fits their community, you know, that's embedded within what that community believes, um, how they, you know, how they take information, that kind of thing. And so really the job of people like me is to help those people and empower those people to provide the information to the people in their community. And I think we've had far too much of the, oh, you know, the scientists know everything and they're the kind of font of all knowledge and you have to listen to them. And actually, there are many communities who don't trust scientists, who don't trust governments, you know, for some of them for really good reason. (laughs) And so um, that's why I think it's really important that in many cases we step aside. The other really crucial thing is we, we also know that trying to debunk myths and trying to debunk disinformation and it can really badly fail. People will just remember the wrong thing rather than the, the, rather than the right thing. And so actually what we need is to be putting out good information that doesn't even address, you know, that isn't repeating the false stuff. But we also need people to understand why they're seeing the things that they're seeing. People need to understand how social media companies work, how their algorithms work against us. You know, they need to understand who's creating fake information and why. That's what's really changed for me is the working with trusted voices and trying to explain to people, actually, I'm not going to debunk that stuff. I'm going to point you into the direction of some really good resources around how fake information spreads and why people are spreading it. While you were talking about that, I I couldn't help but think of the connection between where you have these huge online communities and they exist and they're communities and there are trusted voices in those communities, whether they're worthy of our trust or not. And how it just seems like that's an incredible way that misinformation spreads almost more quickly than good information. You're absolutely right. One of the things that Toby and I did was put out a graphic that was talking a little bit about what are the red flags. What will help you determine whether the trusted voice in your community is actually not a trusted voice, right? You might trust them, but they actually don't have your best interests at heart. You know, and I've had many people say, well, why would I trust you? And I guess my response to that has always been, I'm going to be open and transparent with you. I'm going to tell you, and not just tell you, I'm going to show you what I care about. 
And I want you to listen and see that. And I want you to ask those same questions of the people that you're trusting. Those trusted voices in those communities are the bad ones, (laughs) the ones with an agenda. They are calling for people like me to be prosecuted and executed, right? That tells you something. They're yelling about freedom while trying to stop most people's freedom. (laughs) So I think that's what we need to get people to understand is, is, is what are people's values that you're trusting? And I think what we need to be doing now more as communicators is starting to embed this kind of, here's actually how information spreads. Here's what makes it spread really far and really wide. And it sounds like that's probably your big piece of advice, but I'm just curious if you have any other advice for comps professionals out there who are trying to craft effective messaging that catches on and also moves people to act. Do you know, I, I still not really sure what makes a message the like what makes a message go viral. I think it is things that that do make people feel empowered, right? And that do give really clear this is what you can do. Because the other one of our graphics that went viral, and this one really went way more successful than than flatten the curve, but people probably don't know it, was one that we did that showed exponential spread. So it showed transmission chains showed how one person, it's just a little dot and then lines connecting and how these lines grow and grow. But what we did was we had an alternate version of that where we showed how transmission chains could be stopped by people's actions. And it reflected what New Zealand was doing at the time. This was back in like March 2020, where it was like, don't go to that barbecue, don't do this, right? That our actions mattered. And that one ended up being picked up and being, you know, incorporated into comms by governments, by organizations, you know, they completely like they changed the coloring and they, you know, they made it their own. But again, what that one did was it illustrated a concept, but it gave people actions. I think my last little bit of advice for comms people would be collaboration. You know, what Toby and I did together just it produced things that was greater than the sum of its parts, right? Me as a scientist working with an expert in you know visual communication has produced some really amazing work. And so I think that we should never underestimate the power of collaboration and working with people who very much see information and process information in different ways. I think that's really that, you know, amazing things can happen. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I'm honored to have you. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, what a wild ride it's been. (laughs) This conversation with Dr. Susie and Toby made me realize how they basically achieved the damn near impossible. They were able to craft the right message for the right medium at the right time and get it out to a world that desperately needed it. So what can we learn from their successes, their trials, and even their regrets? For me, what really resonated was the importance of becoming that trusted voice in our employee community. In order for our messages to stick and our CTAs to inspire action, people need to trust who they're coming from. It also made me wonder, who is my Toby? Who helps elevate my work? Because collaboration really was the secret sauce that turned something simple into something that the entire world could understand and relate to. So who are the talented people we can collaborate with symbiotically to lift each other up? 
Today, our guests were Dr. Susie Wiles, microbiologist and science communicator, as well as her partner in crime, Toby Morris, illustrator and recipient of the Prime Minister's Science Communication Award. I'm Kyla Sims, and this is Infernal Communication, brought to you by StaffBase, with production support from JAR Audio. Today, we talked about a message going viral during, well, a literal virus. So join us for our next episode, where we look at the hyper-competitive world of pushing for internet virality. But more importantly, how virality might just push back in your face. So sometimes I'll post something and I think it's like brilliant and no one will interact with it. And I'm like, why does that make me feel so terrible? So don't forget to hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you like today's episode, leave us a review. We'd love to know what you think. Until then, thanks for listening.